In the name of the Father and the Son and God's Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. It is, uh, it is surely one of Western civilization's best-known stories. Uh, for 2,000 years now, it has been told and retold. It has been preached. It has been sung. It has been um, represented by the titans of art, as well as the peddlers of cheap lawn figures. Um, really, even if you didn't go to church growing up, uh, you know this story. You know the locale, uh, a manger in Bethlehem. You know the cast, Mary and Joseph. You know the supporting cast. There are wise men and shepherds and angels. Uh, you probably know a little bit about the details, the census, the long journey, the overcrowded inn, and yet, as is so often the case, the story's familiarity may well keep us from grasping its riches. We think, oh, I know this story, as its depths and nuances pass us by. There is so much to the story that doesn't meet the eye, so many details that we might miss. In fact, the image that you have in your mind of how the Christmas story went is not likely to be exactly the way the Bible tells it. So over these next few weeks of Advent, I want to take a fresh look at that old story. Um, I want to focus on the family. There's a phrase you didn't think I would ever use. <laughs> Starting with Mary today, and next week Joseph, and then Elizabeth when Mary goes to visit her. And finally, at Christmas Eve, we will arrive at the manger. So the story begins in Nazareth, about nine months before the birth. And uh, if ever a narrative cried out for attention to detail, this is it. So it is worth taking another look at this little town, because really the whole story is like a parable about the nature and the character of our God. It turns out that Nazareth is actually much better known today than it was in Jesus' day. It's not one of the 63 villages noted in the Hebrew Talmud. It's not one of the 45 mentioned by the Jewish historian Josephus, who presumably knew the area well. It's a town of maybe 200. Now, in telling a stranger about Nazareth, a native might well have mentioned the nearby town of Sepphoris, which had a population of more like 30,000 and was really comparatively affluent, filled with culture and shopping. Excavations have uncovered luxury villas. Think Birmingham. Extravagant tile mosaic floors. Now, Nazareth, on the other hand, is a town of shepherds. It's farmers, it's day laborers who probably walk a mile both directions to peddle their wares and to mop the floors over in Sepphoris. I picture Nazareth, Nazareth like so many of the little towns up north, the UP, all across this country. You know these kinds of towns. They have one flashing light in the center of town. There's no restaurant to speak of. Uh, the kids get picked up every morning and driven to another town for school. Um, people wear the same clothes they were wearing 10 years ago. There is nothing pretentious about them. Just good, hardworking people. You get a sense of the low status of Nazareth 
uh, at the beginning of John's gospel, where you remember Philip, one of the early disciples of Jesus, turns to his friend Nathaniel and he says, we have found the one that Moses and the prophets wrote about. He's Jesus, the son of Joseph, over in Nazareth. And without a moment's hesitation, Nate says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Remember what they said about the Wright brothers. Nobody will fly, but if anybody ever does fly, it certainly won't be somebody from Dayton. Even the name Nazareth tells you something about the people who live there. Nazareth comes from the Hebrew word netzer. It means literally a branch or a shoot. So you know how when they cut down a tree, sometimes a shoot will grow up from that stump. That's the netzer. So much of the Hebrew scriptures, so much of the writing of the prophets is about predicting or in response to the destruction, the cutting down of Israel. The north of Israel was invaded in the 8th century BC by the Assyrians. In the 6th century, it was the Babylonians who came in and destroyed the city and the temple. And so the prophets, in, in describing this destruction and this reemergence of Israel, um, they used this metaphor of a tree cut down and then a shoot that arises. So here are these famous words from Isaiah that you hear every year at this time. A shoot shall come from the stump of Jesse. Jesse, the father of the great king David, and a branch, a netzer, will grow out of its roots. So the netzer was like a promise of hope. To say that you were from Netzeris was to ground your entire identity as a community into the hope that one day God would bring a future king, a Messiah, who would deliver them. And little did they know that that promised one from Isaiah would actually be one who grew up right there in their hometown. So what does it say that this God would choose of all places this one to begin his story. What does it say that this story doesn't begin in, say, Sepphoris or any of the luxury condos there, but instead among the working class people? What does it tell you about who God can use or about where God's favor lies? Could this be God's way of reminding us we who are so taken with celebrity and wealth and power, could this be God's way of showing us who God can choose to do God's important work? Isn't this, for example, the same God who chose just a small cadre of Egyptian slaves to be his chosen people? Is he not the one who chose the youngest of Jesse's sons, David, the little shepherd boy, to become the greatest king of Israel. So the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is low and despised in this world. And what does that say to you about how God can use you? Or how God can use a little church on a tiny corner in an inner ring suburb known as Berkeley. So God chooses this, at best, ordinary town and this 
unlikely and uneducated girl, really, probably from a poor family. Maybe her relatives were actually servants over in Sepphoris. People of no pretension, people who didn't feel like the world revolved around them. Mary, a 13-year-old perhaps. Remember, you only lived to be about 35 in those days. None of the girls went to school. A girl was considered a woman as soon as she had her first menstrual period, typically was married not long after that. And so Mary is engaged, prearranged, of course. According to the custom, there would be about a year-long engagement, followed by a formal ceremony. Finally, she and her husband would consummate their marriage. They would begin having children. Every year, it was expected that the woman would give birth to another kid. Women literally hoped and prayed that they would survive this annual birthing process. Really, do you think Mary was any more prepared for the coming of an angel than you would be? The word angel in Greek literally means messenger. We tend to think of those angels as these little winged creatures that we hang on our Christmas tree. But more likely, Gabriel appeared to Mary as just an ordinary human being. There's no indication in the story whatsoever that she was terrified by his appearance, only by his message. So in the scriptures, angels, angelos, most often appeared as strangers, indistinguished from most mortals, bearing the good news of God. In fact, sometimes the word angelos is actually used for mortals. So in Luke's gospel, it says that John the Baptist sent angelos, messengers, to question Jesus. In the Christmas story, have you ever noticed that the shepherds, having seen Jesus, became themselves angelos, go and tell, go tell it on the mountain. At the end of Matthew's gospel, um, in what we call the Great Commission, Jesus calls his disciples, that would be you, to become angelos, messengers. The truth is, I have never seen a heavenly angel, at least not one that I have recognized. But I have met the earthly kind because there have been people who came into my life at just that moment when I needed a word of encouragement or a word of comfort or sometimes a word of challenge. And there have been times where I have had the privilege of being that person for someone else. Not long ago, I read an article. A pastor had asked his congregation to share their experiences with angels. And one of them, a choir member, who was actually going through a life-threatening illness, um, talked about the fact that one night, 20 of her fellow choir members sneaked into her hospital room and began to sing to her. This is what she wrote. She said, I believe that each of us is blessed and called to be an angel throughout our lifetime. It's how we affect the lives of others. I had an entire chorus of angels coming to me in the hospital. They lifted me with their wings of love as they sang at my bedside. 
I believe in the heavenly kind of angels. I am much more intrigued, however, by the earthly kind. Those come to us at just the right moment with a word of comfort and encouragement. And so the Angelos comes to Mary and tells her that she will be the mother of Messiah. And Mary's response is as practical as it is understandable. How is this possible? I'm not married. I've never been with a man. Gabriel responds, God's spirit will come upon you and the Most High will overshadow you. The words which, of course, lay the foundation for what we know as the virgin birth. More accurately, the virgin conception. You know, Matthew and Luke both tell us that Mary became pregnant in a supernatural way. But what they are saying is not primarily biological. It is theological. I mean, I suppose it could be taken as a sexual thing. Everything else is today. But that doesn't seem to be what either Gabriel or Luke is interested in. What they do want to make clear is that Mary's pregnancy was made possible by the direct intervention of God. Now, the idea of the virgin birth became a sticking point somewhere in the middle of the 19th century and into the beginning of the 20th century, and it still is today. Viewing the world through the apparent certainty of science with a belief that God can only do what modern science can prove, people asked, how can we believe in a virgin birth? And so many, even today, say, they're simply not going to be a Christian because they don't believe in that. Now, there were others, on the other hand, who said maybe Mary and Joseph conceived Jesus in the normal way, but God had uniquely shaped this child and placed his spirit upon him. Those first Christians responded by saying, if you don't believe in the virgin birth, you're just not a Christian. To which the other Christians responded, you know, the virgin birth isn't even mentioned in the Apostle Paul's writing not to mention in the Gospel of Mark or the Gospel of John. So there were probably a lot of people in the early church who didn't know how Jesus was conceived. And so how important could it be? I understand the arguments on both sides. It is unlikely that we will solve this this morning, though perhaps down at coffee hour where important things are all settled, that could be. Having said that, let me just say that what at one point was a sticking point in my faith simply isn't anymore. I mean, in a day where physicians artificially inseminate, when scientists are capable of cloning not only animals but embryonic stem cells, the notion that the God who created everything out of nothing, maybe through the Big Bang, the God who invented the laws of biology, the God who is primarily responsible for the makeup of our DNA, the idea that that God could not do this, it is simply not important to me anymore. What is important, what it seems to me Luke is trying to get at, is that this baby was not just a son, but the son of God. In other words, if you want to know what God is like, look through the lens of this man. You want to know what God is like, get to know the man who walks the pages of the New Testament. So, 13-year-old Mary, standing by this spring in Nazareth, 
listens to this messenger and desperately tries to take it all in. Would she really be the mother of Messiah? Would she be pregnant out of wedlock? What would her family think? What would her neighbors say? And in the midst of all this questioning and uncertainty, Mary's response is as simple as it is profound. She doesn't need to understand everything perfectly. She simply says, here I am. Mary says, yes. Despite the fact that the law is very clear that a woman getting pregnant out of wedlock could be stoned to death. Mary says, yes. Despite the fact um, that she has no idea where this is going to take her. She says yes, knowing that it means putting all of her hopes and dreams about a beautiful marriage and a traditional wedding on hold. Protestants have long reacted to what they perceive as an overemphasis on Mary among Catholics, and we have reacted by minimizing her role. But it is important to remember that apart from Jesus, no other human being played such a crucial role in the whole drama. Everything hinged on what Mary would say. Writing in a blog in the Christian Century, a pastor, Christian Kuhn, tells a story about a Christmas pageant at their church where all of the kids came to find out about their roles as wise men and shepherds and friendly beasts of one kind or another. He says, none of the boys were fighting over the chance to play Joseph, who frankly has no lines in the whole thing. But then he asked, who wants to be Mary? And all of these hands went up around the room, because here, of course, is the starring role. But then Kuhn asked this question, do you think Mary wanted to be Mary? What do you think? I mean, amidst all the scandal, the potential punishment, knowing that her hopes and dreams for a traditional wedding and marriage would likely go right out the window. Do you think Mary wanted to be Mary? As we mull that question and her decision-making, maybe we find ourselves in the story. Her mission, her decision reminds us that God's call is sometimes difficult. It may mean setting aside our own plans. It may even mean giving up some of our hopes and dreams. It certainly may be risky. Because sometimes God calls us to be among people we would not choose and to go to places where otherwise we would not find ourselves and to lean into things that we don't know exactly how they are going to work out. Not once but twice, Mary is said in the story to be favored. But this is surely a very different kind of favor, isn't it? So as we begin the journey this morning, together with this young woman, from a very ordinary town, maybe Mary brings us an invitation as well. Maybe she is Angelos. To offer ourselves more fully to God, despite all of our questions and our well-conceived plans. Christmas, it turns out, has very little to do with what you will buy in the next few weeks or what the menu will be or who will arrive to visit when. It is all about our willingness to say with Mary, here I am, Lord, use me.
Amen.